Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Psalm 72. If Psalm 58 or Psalm 69 give us an opportunity to talk in general terms about imprecatory psalms, then Psalm 72 affords us a similar opportunity to talk about messianic psalms. Messianic psalms generally anticipate and celebrate Messiah through the lens of an actual Davidic king. So it is here. Derek Kidner says, uh, for example, about the psalm, as a royal psalm, it prayed for the reigning king and was a strong reminder of his high calling. Yet it exalted this so far beyond the humanly attainable, for example, in speaking of his reign as endless, as to suggest for its fulfillment no less a person than the Messiah, not only to Christian thinking, but to Jewish, closed quote. That Psalm 72 is ultimately messianic, was understood and accepted even within the Old Testament itself. In Zechariah chapter uh, chapter 9, written in the early 5th century BC, the prophet quotes Psalm 72, verse 8. Let me read that verse to you. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Psalm 72, 8 in the ESV. Now, listen to Zechariah 9, 10, also in the ESV. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah 9.10. Gordon Wenham says here, This quotation clearly shows that messianic interpretation of some psalms occurred long before the Christian era, because Zechariah is clearly prophesying a future ruler, not commenting on a past one, closed quote. So this psalm is a royal psalm and a messianic psalm. Other messianic psalms include Psalms 2, 45, 89, 110, 132, and 144. Now, there are others as well, which are more debatable. Psalm 72 is the last psalm in book 2 of the Psalter. It is generally recognized that there are five books within the collection paralleling the five books of Moses. Verse 20, the last verse of Psalm 72, indicates a certain division. It says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Now, that verse inclines some people to think that Psalm 72 might have been written by David, even though the ascription says, of Solomon. But most scholars feel that this was, in fact, a psalm of Solomon that did belong in the collection of David because Solomon was David's son and the immediate steward of the great promises that were made to David's house. J. Alec Machir sees it this way, saying the expression to Solomon most naturally means ascribed to Solomon by Solomon belonging to him because written by him. There is no persuasive reason to question this closed quote. So, even though this psalm wasn't written by David, it is the perfect climax for the Davidic collection. Gordon Wenham makes that point, saying, Book 2 concludes with Psalm 72. Thus, the first two Davidic collections 
cover episodes from David's life, though not in chronological order. But the great hopes for David's descendants expressed in Psalm 72 were apparently shattered by the fall of Jerusalem and the monarchy, events alluded to in many Psalms of Book 3, most explicitly in the final one, Psalm 89. However, Books 4 and 5 respond to the lament of Psalm 89 with the call to trust in the Lord's rule, not in human rulers, without giving up the hope in the eternity of the Davidic covenant, closed quote. So what Wenham is saying there is that the general theme of Book 2 has been the heights and depths of David's life and reign, which climax naturally in the great hopes that were placed upon David's son, Solomon. Solomon thus represents the high-water mark of the Davidic era. But as Bible readers know, things went terribly wrong near the end of Solomon's reign. Solomon was not Jesus. We have to wait a long time in the arc of the biblical narrative for the greater son of David, whose reign shall truly be from sea to shining sea. That is the true and ultimate hope of this psalm. And it was the inspiration for one of the greatest hymns in all of Christendom. Isaac Watts' classic, Jesus Shall Reign, is based on Psalm 72. So, with all that being said, hear now the word of the Lord, beginning with the brief ascription and proceeding on to verse 1. Of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Derek Kidner, in his commentary, gives this psalm the title, The Perfect King. I think that is helpful to keep in mind. It reminds us to hear this simultaneously as a prayer for Solomon and as a prophecy of Messiah, of Jesus. Every king should... Judge the people with righteousness. Every king should honor the poor with justice. Every king should seek the prosperity and flourishing of his people and defend them from every power and principality that would do them harm. But every merely human king will fail, ultimately, and fall tragically short of that ideal. And that is why we need Jesus Because until Jesus reigns, all human beings will be subject to fallen and imperfect leadership. And that is why we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come, Lord Jesus. Verse 5. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Here again, we see this prayer tipping over into the prophetic. The psalmist is praying for things in such exalted language as to require fulfillment in something more than a merely human king. This kind of language about people fearing and reverencing the king as long as the sun endures and and longer than the lifespan of the moon suggests that we are ultimately looking past the immediate king, Solomon, and towards the arrival of David's greater son, the Messiah. Verse 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea 
and from the river to the ends of the earth. I mentioned already that verse 8 is quoted in Zechariah 9.10 in a messianic sense. Verse 8 is also the motto for the nation of Canada, my native country. A mari usque ad mari is Latin from the Latin Vulgate for from sea to sea. It was intended as a double entendre. It expressed the national aspiration at the time to stretch our political boundaries from the Atlantic Ocean all the way to the Pacific, while at the same time expressing the quieter aspiration of our founding fathers to see the entire country resting peacefully and prosperously under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Lord, make it so in our days. Verse 9, may desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. I mentioned that Old Testament scholars often view the reign of Solomon as really the high water mark of the Davidic era. Well, if that's true, and I think it is, then the high-water mark of the reign of Solomon is the visit and tribute of the Queen of Sheba. You could easily make the argument that, thematically anyway, the visit of Sheba and the, and the gifts and tribute that she brings is the closest we get to the Messianic era in the Old Testament dispensation. I mean, you could almost be forgiven for thinking that when she comes, a queen from far away, and brings the glory of the nations into Jerusalem and lays them down at the king's feet, you could almost be forgiven for thinking that this is the kingdom of God. But of course it wasn't. And the kingdom of Solomon faded rather quickly from that high water mark. But it does provide a general outline for our anticipation of the coming eternal reign of Christ. You can hear echoes of that story and this prayer in Revelation 21, 24 to 26. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Amen. Hallelujah. That is the eternal kingdom of God. And unlike the high water mark of Solomon's reign, the reign of Jesus over all the nations of the earth will never fade and never fall and never fail. It will be always and ever green. Thanks be to God. Verse 12. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. When you understand how these verses function as a prayer for Solomon and as a prophecy of Christ, the only logical response is to say in response to these verses, Maranatha, our Lord, come. Verse 15, long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him, may prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land, on the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed.
Notice here how the prophecies and promises given to Abraham in Genesis 12 are now understood to have landed upon the son of David. God said to Abraham, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12, 2-3. That promise and that prophecy was originally as wide as the family of Abraham. But here, by the midway point of the Bible, it has narrowed onto the line of David. The prayer in verse 17 says explicitly, may people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. The son of David is now the seed of Abraham, in which all nations will be blessed. The Apostle Paul makes that point explicit in Galatians 3, saying, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ, closed quote. Do you hear that? The promise was not for every child of Abraham without exception. No, no, no. Not to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Christ, the ultimate son of David. There is a progressive narrowing of the promises over the course of the biblical canon. They were as wide as the family of Abraham in Genesis 12, and then as narrow as the sons of David in 72, Psalm 72. And then finally in the New Testament, they have narrowed to the one man, the one son of David, the only begotten son of God, who gave his life alone that we might be saved and blessed of God. And that is the point where they widen out once again. The Apostle Paul says, For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen to the glory of God through us. 2 Corinthians 1.20. Do you hear that? Now, Paul says, in Christ, the promises of God are as wide as the whole world. Verse 18. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. (laughs) Amen. Amen and amen. And thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at Into the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word 
is a lamp unto my feet. 